You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this is this The is Hour. You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour. With Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour. RA's blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. I'm Martha, producer of The Hour, here to guide you through this month's episode. On the show this month, Tom Faber takes us into room two, exploring the resurgence of the chill-out room and its relationship to ambient music. Dance music is intense, especially when it's really, really loud and it's in a club. I think that can feel quite overwhelming. I think that if there was a room for you to just have a breather every now and again, that used to happen, so what's changed? Sybil Gillespie gets to grips with DJ etiquette, the unspoken guidelines that help make navigating booth politics a little smoother. To me, DJ etiquette is basically knowing how to navigate the transition between DJs smoothly and helpfully and without being a total jerk. But first, Aaron Coultate recently spent some time in Tanzania to write a feature on Singeli music. Aaron passed through the studio to share some thoughts from his trip before writing his feature for the RA website. Aaron joins me in the studio now. So Aaron, towards the end of last year, you spent some time in Tanzania. What kind of sounds were you hearing out there? Hi, Martha. Uh, yeah, that's right. I spent a week in Dar es Salaam digging into a genre called Singeli, which has become uh, increasingly popular in Tanzania and beyond this past few years. It's a style of music that when you first hear it can be quite overwhelming. It's frenetic, 180 BPM plus um, music, often with equally fast MCs on top. The tracks are made using loops uh, in the virtual DJ software. Its origins lie in various little micro scenes um, that were happening in Dar es Salaam. Um, that coalesced into this one style and it's influenced by Tarab, uh, which is a style of music that's popular in Zanzibar. Actually, the first Singeli tunes were essentially traditional Tarab rhythms that were sped up using the virtual DJ software uh, until they barely resembled the original music. So you've described the instrumentals. What about the lyrical content of the music? Yeah, I guess the lyrical content is mostly focused on everyday life problems with money, problems with relationships, kind of a reflection of what's going on in the working class neighbourhoods of Dar es Salaam. So some of the key artists um, include CISO, who is basically credited as the inventor of Singeli. Um, he set up the CISO studio in Mubarati in Dar es Salaam in 2013. Uh, and there's Jay Mitter, who's a really talented producer, and also met a young MC called Dogo Janya. Uh, Dogo means young and Janya means boy. And there's another young MC, her name is uh, Antivirus or Antivirus. Um, and she hasn't released much yet, but um, yeah, I, I sort of bumped into her a couple of times and she played me some of her demos um, that she had on her phone. Um, and I think she's she's really great as well and someone to keep an eye on. Tell me a bit more about the scene in which this genre exists. Like, is there an infrastructure for the music? There isn't really much of an infrastructure um, to be honest, there aren't many places for um, this music to be performed live in Dar es Salaam. Um, there are a couple. I went to a nightclub out near the airport. Um, Duque and MC Zoe were scheduled to play at the end, like the really sort of late end of a of a night that was mostly um, soundtracked by Bongo Flavor, which is basically the name for Tanzanian hip hop, which is massive um, in Tanzania. Beyond that, there's not much of a market for people actually buying this music. It generally gets pirated pretty quickly. There's actually a a well-known market where people go and buy like pirated um, USBs and CDs and stuff like that. And Singeli has been really hot in those markets for a little while now. 
And I guess the other thing that's led to Singeli becoming more popular, at least within Tanzania, is um, radio coverage. There's a couple of fairly major stations in Dar es Salaam that have picked up Singeli. There's one called EFM that has like a weekly Singeli show. And I actually spent an evening hanging out at EFM and yeah, everyone was super lovely. Um, but it's it has brought the Singeli music to a very different audience to illustrate like the EFM studio, you know, getting there involved going past like the French embassy, the American embassy and all this kind of stuff. So it's in that part of town where most of the artists who are actually making or performing Singeli um, definitely don't live or hang out. All right, let's hear something then. You've brought two songs along to show us. What is this first one? Well, the first one I'd like to play is called Tatitso Pesa, made by Jay Mitter, featuring Doggo Janja. I heard it being performed maybe 10, 15 times in a row while the music video um, was being recorded, and it sort of wormed its way into my head and hasn't really left since. Um, we can put a, a link to the, the actual video that really does bring it to life as well when you're watching that. It's um, these teenagers basically sort of making their way around uh, the neighborhood where the CISO studio is. to the hour from resident advisor and aaron is here in the studio sharing some thoughts on his recent trip to tanzania so tell me a little bit more about your experience in tanzania well i spent a lot of time in two recording studios um one belonging to ciso um who is basically the godfather of singeli another sort of run by an artist called duke generally soaking things up i met a dozen or so artists and went to a block party actually that took place um, right next to CISO studio. And that was an interesting experience. Firstly, as part of like getting the permission to do this sort of block party um, from the authorities, they had to have a, a reason that they were throwing a party. Like it's kind of inconceivable that you would just throw a party for people to come and dance and have fun. So they had to um, say it was for the birthday of CISO records. Um, so they had to get a birthday cake basically made to sort of prove that. So there was a birthday cake and the party started fairly early and it was like brought in a really big sound system and CISO was playing some music and there were loads of kids dancing basically at this stage. Um, but unfortunately it got shut down within a couple of hours of starting, despite the fact they had all the correct permission from the local authorities. 
turned out there was a public funeral happening like just a couple of streets away that was being attended by like local police and councillors and stuff like that. Um, and as soon as they caught wind of this like block party happening around the corner, they um, they shut it down pretty quickly. And I actually left to go home the next morning, but they tried to have the party again the following day and actually ended up with uh, Jay Mitter, one of the main producers in the Singeli scene, um, ending up in jail for the night. So it kind of, I, I don't know how he got arrested and why he ended up having to go to jail, but it just shone some light on the challenges being faced if you want to throw a party in Dar es Salaam. So how is Singeli music being received in the city compared to in the rest of the world? Well, it's super popular right now in Dar es Salaam and also increasingly elsewhere in Tanzania. Artists are getting booked to play at events, um, mostly like sort of block parties or the odd festival here or there, which is super promising. Um, And it's also been really interesting to see the music get picked up outside of East Africa. Singeli came onto my radar at the Nege Nege Festival in Uganda in 2017. I caught wind of this like crew of, of artists that had come over from Tanzania to perform um, and was like told by various people, don't miss their performance, don't miss it. Um, and anyway, there was torrential rain that night and their slot got pushed back from like 1am to 2am to 3am, some more technical difficulties and it was 4am. Anyway, I never ended up seeing them which was a real shame. But uh, Nyege Nyege's label uh, released a compilation called The Sounds of CISO um, in 2017 as well. And that really put it on on the map as a sound outside of East Africa. So yeah, Arlen Dulcizian, one of the founders of Nyege Nyege, actually went out to visit Dar es Salaam a few years ago. He had no idea where any of these artists lived, um, only kind of knew their first names. Um, there was no information about them on the internet or anywhere. So he kind of just got into a taxi and just asked the taxi driver like have you heard of these guys and luckily enough the driver was this guy called Abassi who was super tight with the CISO crew and basically all of the Singeli artists and he's turned into a kind of artist liaison for the whole scene so when I was out there um, Abassi showed me around and also worked as a translator um, when I was doing some interviews so that was how Arlen first connected with CISO Um, and anyway yeah since then Singeli artists have been touring the world um They've been especially sort of well-received in Europe. Um, I saw CISO perform at Cafe Otto in London a little while ago. They've been booked for Unsound um, a couple of years running. This year at CTM in Berlin, MC Zoe and Duque played at Berghain on the Friday night and apparently it went down really, really well. So you've brought along one more song for us and then people will be able to read more about your experience in Tanzania on the site soon. That's right. Um, We'll be publishing the piece uh, in the coming weeks. But yeah, in the meantime, I'll leave you with a track by Duque. Um, It's from his upcoming album called Ungizaji Hewa. Excuse my pronunciation there. Um, The album's coming out on Nege Nege tapes um, in early March. And this track's called Duke 4.
Thanks to Aaron for sharing some stories and sounds from the world of Singeli music. Look out for his full feature on the site soon. Next, Sibwood Gillespie from RA's editorial team has been speaking to selectors about etiquette behind the decks. You're listening to The Hour from Resident Advisor. What is good DJ etiquette? What is DJ etiquette full stop? How should DJs treat each other in the booth? On this episode of The Hour, we'll be looking to answer these questions and get to the bottom of this nebulous term. I decided to look into this after realising that DJ etiquette is something that many people reference or allude to in conversation, but rarely actually explain. And there's certainly many DJs out there who haven't got a clue. Whether it's mixing out of your B2B partner's track too soon or ending your warm-up set on a much too banging note, most DJs have experienced a DJ etiquette faux pas of some sort and probably made such an error themselves. If you're just starting out, how could you know what is and isn't the done thing? It's something you pick up with experience, sure, but perhaps awkward missteps could be avoided if everyone just knew about this in advance. I wanted to ask a range of DJs for their thoughts on this topic, to share their experience and learn what advice they have for DJs starting out. You'll be hearing from Debonair, Paris, Charisma, Sherelle and Noncompliant. Fair warning my cat, if I talk to anyone that's not him, will start meowing really loudly. <laughs> Noncompliant is a Midwestern DJ and producer. As she has been DJing for over 20 years, I knew she'd be someone to go to to find out what's what. I gave her a Skype call to hear what she had to say. To me, DJ etiquette is basically knowing how to navigate the transition between DJs smoothly and helpfully and without being a total jerk. And it just means things like, don't go over your time slot, that's a big one. I used to have people who would, like for their last record, they would start mixing the same record back and forth for like five minutes and go over their time just to draw out their slot. Don't do that. <laughs> that's really, really rude and really annoying. Like I'd be standing there with my record waiting. They knew I was there, so. Sometimes it becomes a little bit of a power game, so don't do that. <laughs> and sometimes it's real simple stuff, like letting the next DJ know when you're playing your last song so they can be ready. And, you know, that's usually just the universal hand signal of one <laughs> to let somebody know, get ready, get your drives or your records or whatever you're playing ready. And, you know, with all the different technology to tractor or serato sometimes people are are plugging things in if there's a small booth that's not got room for a second setup so you know if you have to connect things and you couldn't get there for sound check like obviously if you can get there for sound check do it then and don't bother somebody while they're playing but if you have to do it while somebody else is playing let them know what you're doing and stay as much out of their way be as unobtrusive as you possibly can wait till they're out of a mix before you have to you know plug something into the back of the mixer be careful don't knock a tone arm off a record that's playing or brush the cdj platter with your sleeve and slow it down you know just pay attention and um don't mess up what's going on some of it should be obvious i think like uh, i remember seeing djs step up and start to scratch the record of the last person who was on don't do that <laughs> like that's not your record so never scratch the other dj's record and i've seen people be really rude and, like rip a needle across the record too because they were 
I don't know, mad about something or being a diva. Um, I've seen actual almost fights happen because of that. Sometimes it's just little stuff too. Like if you got to hand them their last record, put your grubby mitts all over it, you know, hold it by the edges, gently hand them their record, hand them their USB drive so they don't forget it. You know, it's just being courteous. <laughs> Did you hear the cat? He just... <laughs> Oh, don't put drinks near gear. And that goes for other DJs. It also goes for audience members if it's just a table. Keep your drinks off the gear. I've had people come over and like lean over my laptop with a drink in their hand. And I like gave them the mom arm and, and like knocked him out of the way. <laughs> and they thought I was a jerk. And I'm like, no, keep your drink away from my stuff. When I first played a gig outside of my city, I didn't own my own headphones. So I had to borrow headphones my first gig. I didn't know that you don't ask people to do that. And thankfully the, the DJ who's still a local here in Indy, John Larner actually was very nice and let me borrow his headphones. But afterwards, the promoter who was a friend of mine was, was like, Lisa, don't borrow other DJ's headphones. You've got to get your own. <laughs> So, but I didn't know that because I was really new. That was my first gig outside of my hometown. Hello, my name is Debonair. I'm a club and radio DJ specializing in the left field and avant-garde. For me, DJ etiquette is really respecting and allowing other DJs and other staff of the clubs and the kind of clubbing ecosystem to all get along with their jobs and exist pretty well together. Okay, I think probably one which comes up a lot is the handover. Over time, I think this becomes easier, but it's still the time for me where the most things can go wrong. You know, if, if the previous DJ, if you've just got in there and they end with a track that's really short, that can be tricky. You know, you need to get in there and maybe you're using slightly different setup to them, or maybe you're gonna change a mixer, and that happens sometimes. Um, and you do just want to get comfortable so you know that you can start your set really well. I mean, I always try and give the previous DJ a bit of shine and, you know, let them have their space. You also don't want to get too involved when they're still doing their thing. So it's kind of about that cooperation and that respect to allow them to wrap it up <laughs> and also enjoy, hopefully, the glory of what's an excellent set, but also get comfortable yourself. Um, we played together once. <laughs> yeah, yeah. On this on this topic before Debbie came in, I remembered that there was a time that Jay and myself were playing before her at Chapter 10. I was still a bit young and excited and we finished our warm-up set on a 135-140 trance track. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, in hindsight, I, I realised probably was... was a bit of a bit of a bad move for Debbie starting her set possibly you know um but I would say it, it maybe threw me a little bit of a time but I also think I'm less bothered by that these days um I'm really happy to reset these days and just start completely on a different tip and I think it's it just comes with experience and time to just have the confidence to maybe completely switch up the room um and you know probably if there was a track say it was you know 120s um, I might have mixed into it but I very much knew what I wanted to do for my set that day obviously I'm going to reset and you know I had a great set 
you had a great set. It all worked out pretty well. Um, but that brings us on to something else, which is whether you mix into your last DJ's set um, track or not, which is something where I feel like there's quite heavy de- debate, really. Have you found this? Yeah, I feel like some people are pretty staunchly always mix into the DJ's last track. Dance floor shouldn't know what's going on and other people are always let it play out and start with something, I don't know, that shows that it's the start of your set. I think the middle ground is that you, you just see what the situation calls for. I totally agree. For me, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's um, totally down to circumstance. On the whole, I like to refresh because for me, as a punter, when I'm going out, I really like to know, just as a music appreciator, what the DJ is doing and it almost paces me through then the night. If I have four DJs on, I kind of want to know where I am through the night without really checking my phone in a more kind of instinctive part of the rave way. Um, and I'm interested in what different DJs are doing. So it's quite nice to know where you are within their set. But I do know one time I was in Ibiza playing at Space. Uh, I think what probably would have been either 2016 or 2017. And I did let a track run out. Um, the previous DJs because I want to start again and people were not happy and by that I mean the club owner the previous DJs it was like you know I'd committed a murder or something (laughs) they no I mean they they thought I didn't know what I was doing I didn't know how to use the kit Um, I had to you know start on and you know get my way through the set and kind of smash it in the first half an hour for them to relax because apparently that just doesn't happen in the white aisle you really really have to (laughs) mix into the previous dj set or yeah it's not okay i'd never been to the island before didn't know about etiquette but um learned the hard way Have you had any instances arrive when, uh, arise when you're playing back-to-back with people? There's a level of compromise, but obviously I don't want to play anything too weird or something's going to throw the next person. I think you've got to know them really, really well to know that they'll be able to handle it or they'll enjoy that or they'll appreciate you taking them in that direction. But I do think there is an etiquette in basically not trying to chief the other person. Also, not being a mixer hogger, that's a big one. (laughs) The worst is, you know, someone's played a track and, you know, it's your turn to go on and they're just living up and heavy noodling and you're like, come on, mate. (laughs) Uh, This is my time, you know. I think that's pretty important. When you learn, you always have those experiences where you may push things a bit too much and people have to bring it down. Hi, my name is Dwayne, but my DJ name is Paris. People never really speak about maybe the etiquette of going back to back in a DJ set, but it's like, even if it's the first time you may maybe DJing with someone, it's like trying to flow with them, not trying to outdo them, trying to keep the flow going nicely. Or the situations where, you know, I may have played with someone and they're just going a bit too heavy at the beginning and you're just like, it's 11.30, the club's been open for half an hour. Take your time, like no one's leaving. In fact, people are trying to come in, give them time to settle and then you can bring the pace on them a little bit later. You know, especially you might be going back to back with someone for the first time and it's trying to learn of each other and work it out in a way where, you know, it's not too much of a ride for everyone where someone's going really high and someone's going really low. It's like, find the balance and work with each other. My tips for new up and coming DJs would be to be patient, understand the kind of lineups they're on, understand where they may sit on the lineup, including set times, and try and cater towards that. So yeah, don't just go heavy too hard too quickly. Learn how to read the booth, learn how to read a situation in the setting, understand the dynamics of the situations you're in. 
do you have any thought on DJs doing like jumping on and doing rewinds on other people's tracks? Like as a DJ, I'm not a fan of the rewinds. I have maybe done two ever, but I think you know I'm a kind of firm believer in leaving a DJ to do what they're doing and enjoying their space, and it's. It's the thing about personal space. So I just think for DJs, I don't agree with it personally. Everyone is different. But for me, I just like the personal space in the booth. And I would rather somebody didn't because they may be interrupting the flow of how my set goes. So by you rewinding it, you may have broken the flow of what I'm doing. And then I might find it quite hard to get back to the place where I was because you've cut it in a very abrupt manner. We were halfway through making this segment when discussion blew up online about the etiquette of rewinding another DJ's track in the wake of Sherelle's Boiler Room set. Riz Latif, another DJ playing the event, abruptly spun back her track midway through her set. Sounds of Sherelle inside, can you please make some noise? The clip of the moment of this rewind surfaced on Twitter and a heated discussion ensued. Opinions were split between those who were arguing that it was an offence to Sherelle to touch the equipment while she was playing and those who were saying a rewind is a compliment rooted in sound system culture and it's really no big deal. We decided we had to speak to Sherelle to see what she thought about all of this. Hi, my name is Sherelle. I'm a representative radio DJ and also a 160 and jungle DJ. For me, DJ etiquette is just mainly being obviously polite to everyone around you, but then at the same time, just also being polite when you're actually in the booth. For me, that particular boiler room situation between myself and Riz was a weird one. Um, the whole boiler room response was like really amazing. And I was so gassed to obviously have the video go viral essentially. And you know, it's actually changed my career um, for the best. I'm all for reload culture and I'm just used to having reloads go off usually in a gig. Um, boiler room situation is a weird one because obviously when you're in a club you can see the universal sign of people spinning their hands back and then that will show you and dictate to you that this is a reload. Um, but to be fair, the only thing I could see was a camera, my Captain Morgans and like various hands like flaring about and all that kind of stuff. So for me, he was probably in the middle of the room just being like, oh, everyone wants a reload, sick, I'm going to go in. And I was just queuing up the next track and trying to prepare the next one to go in. So when I saw his little cheeky hand come in and just reload the track, initially I didn't know who it was. I was like, what the fuck? Who the fuck is this? Because for me, I was just like, it's a very nerve wracking thing doing a boiler room. You know that there's loads of people watching and you just don't want to fuck up. So initially I thought I did something and then, but I realized obviously it was like his hand and stuff. It's unfortunate, obviously, the response that he got because I thought it was pretty fucking brutal. Um, and a lot of people saying that they want to kick his head in, all this kind of stuff, because I had a phone call with him when he deactivated his Twitter um, just to make sure he was obviously okay. Um, but I'm, like I said, I'm from a culture that a reload is a good thing. It just means that you're doing really great. And obviously I did appreciate the reload, but at the same time, um, it just came as a shock and a surprise hence my facial expressions. <laughs> One thing I will say about the Riz Latif situation, obviously, was that I it did bug me that it became so hateful towards him and, and what he did. I understand, obviously, the social aspects to the story, but I think reload culture, obviously, is about the fact that, you know, you're spinning someone's track 
to say that they've done really well and it's got loads of history throughout sound clashing culture and all that kind of stuff so I just wish that obviously people would look at the, the, the wider thing and hopefully like see that the culture is all about kind of celebrating and supporting the music that is being played um, and not just kind of wanting to kick people's teeth in just because they reached over to someone's deck and stuff I'm just not about that kind of vibe I'm all about you know celebrating music Back on our quest for DJ etiquette tips, I called up Charisma, a DJ and producer from Baltimore who I remembered had mentioned DJ etiquette in his interview with RA for his Art of DJing feature back in 2016 to see what advice he could share. One of the first things, at least I do, you know, when I show up for a party, I always show up like between two hours or an hour before just so I can hear what's going on, you know, DJ-wise and musically. And as a respect to, you know, the other DJs that's playing, one of the things that you don't want to run into is the DJ playing, you know, your music. Because, you know, that's, I mean, sometimes they they might think that that's a respect factor that they're playing it, but really, you know, it's just not cool to do that. One of the other things is volume-wise, I hate going into uh, a set and seeing that the other DJ is in the red because that gives you no place to go to, um, you know, if, you know, some of your records or, you know, some of your files are lower than theirs. So it kind of leaves you no room, you know, just in case, you know, you have to go a bit higher in your volume. So those those kind of things are, I think, you know, things you want to look out for as a DJ. You don't want a lot of people in the booth that, you know, are not your friends or, you know, just a lot of people hanging around that don't need to be in the DJ booth. And it, you know, it makes it uncomfortable and it, it's just not not cool. Every now and again, you'll, you'll get situations like this. And I, you know, I don't think they mean to do it. It's just not thinking. You know, I always try to think about other people, you know, when I'm playing, when I'm finishing a set, I try to make sure that I'm at a good level and that I have a rapport with the rest of the people that are doing the party. And that's most important because it's not just you. You're actually on a team. It's like basketball. You are setting a person up for a shot. If you're a warm-up DJ, you have the, the hardest job of all. You got to set the tone. But, you know, setting the tone doesn't mean you have to kill it. That puts the person playing after you in a, in a situation. Now I have to go hard and it's, you know, it's, it's the early part of the party and we got four or five more hours to go. And so once again, like being in the red, where do you go from that? You do have to get people on the floor, but there's a way to do that without playing all the hits. And, you know, my thing is usually if something happens like that, I usually either cut it off or slow it down so that I can start my thing up again. Which, once again, isn't necessarily good for the crowd, but it's probably necessary. The DJ etiquette is really simple. I think those those three rules are, are enough. Be at the party early, listen to the other DJs so you know where you're going, and you're respecting the DJs. No people in the booth, and never leave your set with the volume in the red. If you can get those three down, you won't ever have a problem DJing or DJing with people because they know you respect them. I'm a really simple guy, so it's really clean cut for me. Those things I've always kind of done and it's worked for me. 
You know, I've had the instance of being the one getting in the way. We're back with non-compliant. <laughs> Which uh, I, I was using Serato for, for a while. And, uh, <laughs> and the reason why I don't anymore <laughs> is... Uh, I mean, I always try to stay out of people's way too, but sometimes it's just like you can't get to the back of the mixer because it's like, you know, kind of set into a table or uh, there's, or you can't get in front of it. Um, and you, you know, you just got there, you couldn't get there for sound check. But I actually had a situation, I always brought a power supply because if you run turntables into a Serato box, once you turn off the computer, if you don't have a power supply, there's no sound from the turntables. So, so I brought my own power supply so I could shut down my computer and put it away, but that it could still be going on. And so I was at, <laughs> I was at Smart Bar. I played right before Object, and he's gonna laugh if he hears this because I'm still feeling guilty about it. Like five years later. Um, where he was kind of rearranging all all the plugs. He's like, don't worry, I'll take care of that. I'll plug everything back in, you know, taking it out of the Serato box, plugging it back in, right? And um, so I thought he had done all that already and I pulled the power and I like, boom, everything goes quiet. <laughs> I was mortified and it's funny because to this day, he just still laughs at me when I freak out about it. He's just like, it's okay, I didn't do it right. And I'm like, but I'm the one who unplugged it. So yeah, be really careful about that stuff. If you have to unplug everything, make sure <laughs> that you're not going to destroy the flow of the next DJ set. I've been that jerk, <laughs> but I didn't do it on purpose in my defense. <laughs> Here's Sherelle. I think when it comes to DJ etiquette, when you're a woman you have to be kind of very aware of what's going on around you. I've gone to gigs before and sometimes people have thought I'm the friend, not necessarily the actual DJ. Um, and then in other cases sometimes I've felt like I've been almost pushed out of the actual booth. Um, but I just try and play through it and you know try and let the energy come through and hope for the best really. <laughs> I actually am quite used to playing more so with girls than I am with loads of guys. Um, and I think there's just a genuine mutual respect because obviously a lot of us have had to go through things in order to, you know, even get to a certain point in our careers. And I guess it's just helping each other constantly. Um, there's been a few female DJs that have been DJing a lot longer than I have and they've helped me actually fix the back of a DJ deck and I don't know, just made me feel at ease when I'm in the DJ booth. Good vibes. All round. It seems to be that there are definitely some golden rules everyone brought up when talking about DJ etiquette. Don't redline in your set, don't play the tracks of the DJ playing after you, don't touch the other DJ's decks and be considerate when warming up. And when playing B2B, try to think about the other person you're playing with. The bottom line seems to be just to be considerate and respectful in the booth. I particularly related to these last few words from Debonair. Are there any things that you did maybe earlier in your career when you're still learning stuff that you look back on now and cringe a bit at? Um, I think if I'm honest, at points I maybe took the DJ etiquette too far in the sense that, you know, I played warm-ups and was very much being very respectful of building the night 
and keeping it very easy and not playing bangers when I've got the next person coming up and thinking who was on the lineup, who was headlining, and to very much lay the foundation for the night that was coming. But I think after a while, and after a while of maybe talking to other DJs, including DJs that may be in crime and saying, you know, there is no warm-up, come on, <laughs> you know, play the set you want to play. I think over time, I learned to really take that time for myself and really show what I was made of. So I think over time I learned how to do that and let myself shine, I guess, um, which I think I was very scared of letting myself do, maybe out of being a, a bit too polite to start off with. Yeah, I relate a lot to that. I feel it's something that it takes time to find confidence in your voice as a DJ enough to not constantly feel like you need to adapt to the setting that you've been put in, often as a warm-up DJ when you're, when you're starting out. I can't remember who said this now, but I've heard it said, if you don't want to be booked as the warm-up DJ, don't play like the warm-up DJ. That's exactly it, and that's what I had to learn, but it took me a long time. <laughs> The idea of a chill-out room was a phenomenon in the 90s and noughties, but got lost in the evolution of clubbing. As ambient music catches the attention of more and more of us, Tom Faber has been exploring the resurgence of chill-out spaces inside clubs. You're in the club. It's 5am. The dance floor is heaving and your favourite DJ just finished their set. You're not ready to go home, but you need a time out. You could stand in the corridor while people push past you or try and chill on the concrete floor of the smoking area. Maybe it's cold outside. Maybe you don't smoke. You don't have many options. Early ravers had a solution for this. As dance music tempos got faster and ecstasy became more prevalent in the late 80s, promoters created rooms away from the dance floor where punters could sit down and drift away. Often these chill-out rooms would boast beanbags, soft lighting and even playstations, creating a womb-like environment for maximum relaxation. Around these spaces, a new breed of selector began to emerge, the chill-out DJ, who could play anything from ambient to free jazz. But over time, these spaces started to die out. Chill-out rooms became Room 2, another dance floor which would maximise drinks, dancing and profits. For around 25 years, UK clubs with chill-out spaces have been thin on the ground. But with the resurging interest in ambient music in recent years, these special spaces are making a halting return to nightclubs. I wanted to find out why this is happening and who's at the forefront of this new scene. One spot trying to create a permanent chill-out space is the Pickle Factory in East London. I headed down there one evening in February to find out how it was going. My name's Dan Bean. Dan Bean is part of London promoter crew Bleep 43. I found him playing a set of left-field hip-hop and techno in the Pickle Factory's chill-out room. Like over the last sort of four or five years, we've been doing much more kind of immersive, like chill-out inspired stuff. So we've been lucky that we've got people we've been working with a long time, like Surgeon, for example, who like working with us and will come and do unusual things because they know that we'll create a, an unusual space. So that's that's kind of 
that's kind of what Bleep 43 is about. So tonight I'm in the second room in the pickle factory uh, and me and a fr my friend Crofton are just sort of playing weird random shit, I guess. Mm. <laughs> so chill out rooms kind of disappeared for quite a long time in the UK because basically they don't make a lot of money. You could put someone in a chill out room who's going to like bang out house, you know, nothing wrong with that. And you'd sell a lot more beer and you'd be able to get a lot more people in because you wouldn't have chairs in there and all this kind of stuff. So it disappeared for a long time. And I really miss that thing where you just go in and hear random music and have random chats. Actually, it is important that there's a place like that. And I think the other thing that's helping is that lots of kind of quite established artists are trying, are starting to release a lot more kind of music that you could play in a chill out room. You know, so I like Pariah as a good example. As someone who's, you know, who's known for basically making kind of pretty intense sort of techno and kind of bass music and he's just released a whole, a really, really good whole ambient album. Uh, and I think people see that and kind of go, oh, hold on, there's actually, there's a thing here. Really the kind of, like the end of the chill out rooms, I think was ushered in by the sort of the rise of the super clubs in the 90s, you know, places like Home or, or even the Complex, which is a great club, but you know, there were huge things and they had massive overheads and they were they had to sort of industrialize in order to kind of keep afloat mm. and that trend has continued right through to now even you know even to the Burgine or mm. you know wherever they're, they're they're ruthlessly well organized yeah you know and they're very good at like bringing you in and making you feel part of it but they're still it is like it is industrialized clubbing or mm. like it's a bit like going to a rave supermarket when it's so big and so industrialized you just don't really you don't really feel like a, an individual mm. in it and it's, it's it's too big to connect with uh, I just I just think it's just been missing from the culture for so long and people just don't really understand what they are but you know even compared to like a year or two ago like there's a lot more understanding you know there's a lot more interest in that kind of thing but yeah it's, it's kind of a bit of an uphill struggle sometimes Toby Wareham is the booker for the Pickle Factory. I asked him about the decision to introduce an ambient room to the club. So Pickle Factory's been open three years since last October. I mean, I joined just as the club opened. And even from those kind of early days, we always felt like the, the club needed some sort of extra element because, uh, I mean, I like the simplicity of it as a space, that there's just kind of a dance floor and a nice sound system and a little courtyard to smoke cigarettes. But if you're not really into the DJ that's playing and you don't like smoking and it's a bit chilly outside, there's not really many places to go. So I guess it was, mo it was originally born out of mostly having an extra space for people to sit and relax but I would say that only really took shape as something more towards um, a space where people would also be playing ambient music. A year or two ago, 18 months ago, I've been going to Free Rotation for quite a long time and I've really fell in love with the ambient yurt that they've got there and the balance it kind of brings to the music uh, across the weekend and it's just a nice little spot if you are feeling a little bit fragile to just go and sit and relax and listen to some nice beatless music for a while. Uh, so I kind of helped to push it through as an idea, I suppose. But what it is as a space is it's it's uh, DJs playing ambient music. It is a nice spot to sit down and we, we do what we can with it. Uh, we do projections on one wall and we kit it out with some quite nice lighting and I wave some joysticks around at the start of the evening. But I wouldn't like to pretend that it's kind of uh, super comfy, super 
cush little spot because really it's the space it is is it used to be our cafe which we've now expanded and knocked through a wall into the pickle factory smoking area to transform it into uh, a spot that sells cocktails and also has ambient DJs playing. Yeah. Okay so what's been holding you back from making it into the space that you want it to be? Good question I mean without going too deep into the rabbit hole I suppose what it comes down to is firstly money because it, it does cost quite a lot to do everything that we want to do in there which is acoustic proofing and uh, we do have a nice sound system in there but it's lacking a little bit of bass which you'd have to proof it quite a lot to comply with the licensing regulations which which we have in there also and I think this probably applies to a lot of clubs and spaces which which want to go down this route unfortunately it's not just a club but it's also a cafe in the daytime we also do live music it functions sometimes as a green room for big bands that are playing across the road at oval space so it needs to be a multifunctional space and it doesn't really specialize completely in in what i'd like it to do it's kind of a bit of a jack of all trades i suppose mm. I, I like the diy nature of it we definitely have done as much as we can with it but um it's not quite where we'd like it to be and maybe this this is the year I think where we're planning to really nail it so what would be some additions that would make it into the space it, it, it's at the moment it's a little bit concretey it could just be softer and a bit more cozy in general I, I suppose a bit more decoration some more plants a bit more balance to the sound because at the moment it's, it is lacking a little bit of bass punch um, so it just needs a few little bits and bobs, touches like that, that would definitely make a huge difference mm. cumulatively, I suppose. How are you seeing people use the space? I mean, this is also it as well. They come and go, um, and it's a challenge for DJs that we have playing in there. We have some really great people who specialise in that kind of music that live locally, and they do a really good job. But the nature of the game, I suppose, of a room which also functions as kind of a, a feeder bar to the to the main space is that it is quite a transient crowd. People pop in and have an espresso martini, have a sit down, listen to the music and then probably, you know, want to go and join their mates back inside listening to the DJ that they ultimately paid to come and see. Mm. So there's an element of transience about it which makes it a bit of a challenge. What's really nice is it, it you do see people, particularly later in the evening at about 4am, which is peak, I need to sit down for 10 minutes sort of time. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really nice to see people come and lounge in there with their pals and it does, I think, take a bit of a pressure off the main space. It also means that people stay in the club a little bit longer, I think, on average, which is good for us from a financial perspective and from a party perspective. And do you think they're kept there in a way because there's music playing? Or do you think it would be different if there wasn't music there or if the music from the main room was being piped through? So, so that's a good question, Tom, because we are planning also this year to cable from our amp room, which is in Pickle Factory, across the courtyard into, the, into there, so that if we so choose, we could pipe music through from the main room. That's not necessarily the direction I want to take it, because that would detract from the ambient room experience, but it's a nice option to have. And for example, on the 20th of April, Donato Dozzi's playing in the main room, more of his kind of ambient down-tempo kind of selections, and then it makes sense to be able to pipe the music through so people can sit and have a nice drink and listen mm. to him playing. It definitely makes a big difference to have some kind of music in there because when we started when we first opened it it was literally just this blank space that was too bright with no music and you could see the like jarring mm. nature of it when people walked in half cut and were like what's this get me back outside uh, so yeah of course it makes a big difference to have some sort of music
So do you expect that this is something that we're going to see improving in the Pickle Factory and perhaps appearing at other spaces around London yeah, in we, the coming years? Yeah, we definitely want to improve it at the Pickle Factory. I do think there's more of a thirst for it generally in London, definitely. And, and um, promoters such as Nick and Roops is Mate Me, they, they've started to dip their toes in it as well. And uh, DJs like Object and Cool Super also are, are huge proponents of it. Last time we had Object play, he insisted that his friend Aurora came down and played ambient music back before we even had the room as sorted out as it is now so yes i would say we are generally moving towards a more kind of conscious way of, of going out and a bit more of a like a thoughtful take on it all which goes beyond just going out but actually wanting like a different musical experiences and everything that brings with it so yeah i think so Ben Rubin is one of the promoters behind London party Make Me, who have also tried to install an ambient room at recent events. We always had fond memories of going to clubs like the Q Club in the 90s, the late 90s, and going to parties like Flashback and Atomic Jam. And there would always be an ambient room at, at those parties. And it wasn't like a side thing, it was, it was part of the main event. You'd actually get people going specifically to sit in the ambient room. It just gives a different pace to the party and it gives people who've been in the kind of main bit of the rave somewhere to go and, you know, just chill at a different tempo for a bit. Um, and for others uh, who are less inclined to go onto the dance floor but still want to be um, in a club environment and listening to good music and um, enjoying the social aspects of, of, of the party, um, it's just uh, opens you up to a, to a new audience and um, gives people a, a chance to enjoy what we do in, in a different way. The key to an ambient room really is just making it as, as comfortable as possible. People aren't in there to dance, they're there to listen to the music, yes, but, but to relax and in their own headspace or to spend time with their friends and, and enjoy that, that social aspect. In many ways, it's like a living room. We probably have sofas, some rugs on the floor, kind of ambient mood lighting, nothing too in your face or, or fast paced. The decks will generally be um, on a low table on the dance floor with a sofa behind them that the DJ or DJs will sit on while they're playing. I think that the key thing that you're trying to do is to create an environment where the DJ and the crowd can have a, a much more personal experience with each other than you'd maybe get on a normal dance floor. Uh, and that's really just to do with, with the pace of the sounds and the music that are being played um, and the idea that the, 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 the music is, is creating almost a, like a meditative state that's shared between the crowd and all the participants and, and, and the DJs and it's a different type of joint experience. The reason why it's happened recently, I guess, is we've been to some European clubs. Um, I think Berghain in particular do the ambient room in, in, in Halle very well when, when that room's open. And then also uh, playing at Nat Digital earlier this year, uh, there was an ambient stage there, which was um, on all weekend. And again, it was, it was a main attraction for the, for the festival. It wasn't a, a side thought. You know, seeing people like Ben UFO, uh, leg of doing ambient sets and having that kind of side to their their kind of musical personality and us you know knowing those guys and having the opportunity to book them 
Um, it's just kind of a confluence of things coming together and that's how it, how it all started. With the increased interest in ambient music, a few dedicated events have been set up that cater exclusively to the sound. One is New Atlantis, the New Age themed event held in South London's Rye Wax. I spoke to India Jordan, who runs the night with the help of Alan Wooten, aka Dead Boy. I'm India, I run New Atlantis, London's premier ambient and new age music social, which is a social and a record label, and um, I also DJ ambient and non-ambient. What would a person see if they walked into New Atlantis in full swing? They'd see lots of seats, lots of people sat on the seats drinking tea, perhaps a dog, someone's parents, uh, a baby, there's been quite a lot of babies, uh, <laughs> um, ambient music playing and um, some projections in the background, people eating food, people checking out records, no one shouting. Okay. And the music isn't that loud. Lots of people working and reading as well. I've um, prepared for two interviews at New Atlantis and got both of the jobs. Oh, wow. So New Atlantis is the key to my career. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and what kind of music would you be hearing? Yeah, mainly all ambient and new age. Um, a lot of um, journey stuff and all that sort of in between. And if you're feeling particularly uh, adventurous, you might hear the occasional beat, but it's never any faster than 120 BPM. Okay. And it's okay. mainly always during the day and then going into the evening just to ease people out of the weekend. And starting out, did you feel that it was filling a need in London nightlife? something that wasn't there. Definitely. So I started um, getting into ambient music because of the radio show that I used to run, um, which featured quite a lot of it. And that was my, and then I used to meditate quite a lot. Uh, so that my introduction to ambient was through meditation and, and that show. And yeah, it was there was basically nothing else in London um, that I'd heard of. Alan started the night that came off the back of um, his Black Magic album on the collection. So if you play both sort of ambient sets and dance sets, mm -hmm. what do you have to think about differently when you're selecting for an ambient set? With my background in DJing, I always started, I started off like DJing drum and bass like eight years ago. So my um, training in DJing was always fast tempo, um, fast mixes. So I basically had to unlearn that with ambient and it was more about not beat matching and, and focusing on how to get uh, a smooth blend lo using lots more um, effects on the mixer as well because I think ambient takes a lot more because you can put like a an echo and a reverb on it it doesn't just smash up all the drums because mm. there's no drums you can experiment with the sounds a little bit more Tom Unlikely who runs Rye Wax he did a set for us last month and he played everything at 45 it was just like slowed down to 45 with this massive reverb on it. It sounded like ambient, but it spit it up to its actual tempo and it was probably like something like house. Okay. So we can be a lot more experimental with the sounds because it's more about just a continuous drone sound rather than like fast mixes. Okay, and it does sound like, whether tongue-in-cheek or not, there is a connection to sort of spirituality. Is that something that you take to some extent seriously as well? Yeah, I mean, I think Alan more than me, um, his albums recently under JV Lightbody. Shakti, yeah. eyes closed. <laughs> yeah, that's it, yeah, like um, tantric stuff and all the sort of like Chinese spiritual side of things too from his initial album. He probably just explores it a lot more. I got into it through meditation. How I can enable myself to be more present and to work through things is to sort of connect with music and I can't really meditate without music. So yeah, I don't do meditation as much as I used to, but when I was going through a really depressive period when I got into New Atlantis, like it was the only way I could 
stop my anxiety. So I connect with it on a spiritual level to help me get through things, yeah. So there's something healing in the music? For sure, yeah, I definitely say that. Mm. I have to be in the right mood for it because sometimes ambient music can also make me feel really depressed. <laughs> Drone in particular, it's just quite tense quite all-encompassing sometimes. So what would you see in an ideal chill-out room of a club? My favourite example of what one looks like is Whirly Gig. Club Night's been going for like 35 years and they have a chill-out room there that's got lots of uh, projections on the wall, um, lots of cool things in the room to look at, like random bits of like random statues or like hangings on the wall and lots of bean bags mm. and sofas. It's just a place that's comfortable and safe. Dance music is intense, mm. um, especially when it's really, really loud and it's in a club. I think that can feel quite overwhelming. And I think that if there was a room for you to just have a breather every now and again, especially if, you know, things have got a little bit too much, then if anything, it's good for business, really. Like you want to keep people in your club for as long as possible, then give them some space to chill out because mm. you can't sustain constantly dancing un unless you're really, really fit or being, su <laughs> being sustained by something else. Um, so why do you think a lot of clubs have been reluctant to have that kind of space? I don't know. I think maybe it's uh, not what people are used to anymore. So people are just kind of a little bit scared by it. I am interested in the idea that maybe you can't earn money from a chill out room. People aren't dancing. They aren't getting hot. They aren't drinking. You can't, you don't often buy drinks there. Like mm -hmm. There's always something in that about not making money. But I also think that that's probably like slightly small minded from a business's perspective, because like I mentioned before, if you're keeping someone in the club for longer, they're probably going to make more money out of them in the long run. Do you think it ties into sort of uh, wellness culture? Perhaps. I think there's a um, there's a thing about wellness culture and being intrinsically tied into capitalism and being a, a vehicle for being like, you can get through capitalism and how many hours we make you work if you just like eat an apple and like chill mm. out and meditate every day. Um, and go to a chill out room. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Yeah. At Whirly Gig, to mention it again, they sell cakes and tea and samosas for the people that don't want to drink because it was originally um, a non-alcoholic event and children could come. You know, if clubs are worried about losing money, they could perhaps maybe sell other things mm. other than alcohol yeah. and soft drinks. I wonder if having a space for um, your audience to relax is a way of showing them that you care about them. And I wonder if it can ever be a bad decision, either emotionally or in business sense, mm. to make people think that you care about their well-being. Yeah. And yet very few seem to. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I think also, like, that used to happen, so what's changed? Mm. What has um, changed? I don't know. I think maybe rave culture started in non-corporate spaces and, and now clubbing has become mainstream. It has become corporate in a way. Mm. Like, business clubs are businesses. I've got a friend who was really into the early 90s hardcore scene was chatting to me and sent me some videos of a, a rave that happened in 91 last night and I was checking it out and it looked absolutely incredible. But the venue promotion flyer was like, it was non-alcoholic um, and it had like specs of the venue on the side and it was like clean toilets, all of this lighting, all of this sound system, like uh, inflatables, um, places to get some food and drink. Uh, and it was like marketed as like a, a full on event rather mm. than just like you go to a club, you get smashed and drunk, you go home. It was a bit more holistic like that and I think that perhaps maybe in the 90s it, there was maybe more of a holistic view on what a clubbing experience should be rather than just to make money. So um, Not as transactional, like you yeah. pay money, you get eight hours of dancing, of sweating. Is it possible that as our sort of political moment gets more <laughs> uncertain and kind of horrible in a way and the news cycle is scarier, mm -hmm. we like have recourse to these kind of healing gentle sounds? spaces yeah for sure <laughs> yeah I actually would love to see if there's anything out there in the world 
about um, the rise of um, New Age and its correlation with political uncertainty. Because mm. um, it's definitely a thing right now. <laughs> Miro Sunday Music is a Slovakian DJ and co-founder of Netal Radio. He started DJing in chill-out rooms in the 90s and has been a specialist in left-field sounds ever since. With morning parties like Endless Plenty and his soothing Sunday radio show, Morning Transition. Music is a, has physical impact on us. Uh, it's a vibration and it just goes through your body if you want it or not. That's why. Good music makes... It makes you feel better. Does it take different skills to be a dance DJ than to be a chill-out DJ? I, I think it does. You don't have a beat you can uh, connect people to. Mm. So you have to really find different different way how, how to make people to really connect with what you're doing. Not just pass by or just order a drink on a bar close, close by the DJ. I think it requires particular skill. To know how to create atmosphere with just layers of sound. It sounds almost like you can play anything. It's a, more about the attitude that you bring to it. Yes, it's exactly about the attitude. That's what I wanted to more say, that it's not really about the ambient music only. Ambient music is amazing for this reason, what I found out, for example, on these few after hours I did recently. It really gives the listeners some space between the party moment and you are more able to catch them on uh, more difficult sounds later on and you can really la layer things together but it really requires good sound system the bass is very important it's interesting because you would think that music that didn't rely on drums in the same way that bass would not be so important um, yeah. it's, it's actually more important in this this case i actually play music which requires people to have a seat for five minutes. We are trying to bring it back and I think it's gonna happen and it's happening already. I can see that there is a wheel of having ambient tent on a festival, having some space for people to chill out. The task of introducing chill out rooms to existing venues is an uphill battle I've heard reports from friends of chill-out rooms being shut down in the middle of a party by club owners concerned that the music was dangerous. People should be dancing rather than sitting down. Elsewhere, chill-out rooms have been shut down for lack of interest, or have been merged with other areas, such as the bar. I have yet to see a chill-out room in a London club that feels like it's everything that it should be. But a few spaces are on the way, and the fact that these are making a return shows that there is a real desire to reintroduce a sense of care and community to an increasingly corporate clubscape. I would love to see more of these spaces. They just give you know another interesting dimension to parties. And I think that if club owners want people to keep on coming to their venues, then you know having interesting, unusually programmed events is a good thing. Uh, the economics will be a barrier to that, but you know if you find the right venues with owners and, and management who are, who are really open-minded and are really passionate about the music then I can see this thing becoming more and more popular and obviously that's driven by a renewed interest and focused on, on, on ambient music and you know there's some amazing stuff coming out now 
Uh, there's some amazing DJs and, and live performers who are doing some, some awesome stuff in, in this space. Um, and you know, long may that continue. Thanks to all our contributors on this month's edition of The Hour, and thank you for listening. We're back next month with more documentaries, interviews and discussion.